Well, uh, almost exactly 299 years ago, this Good Friday, uh, Johann Sebastian Bach debuted his St. John Passion in Leipzig, Germany at the St. Nicholas Church. And, you know, people had settled into their pews. They were in church like you are, like you all have. Uh, and then they became the audience of some of the most powerful music and some of the strangest music that's ever been composed. Their ears were hit with a G minor, supported by this deep driving bass note with violas just under it, and, and just above the violas was this sort of skittering of, of dissonant oboes and flutes that almost seemed to be, you know, bickering with each other. And then, maybe the most strangest thing, the chorus entered the piece of music. And they sang, hair, hair, hair. The German for Lord, Lord, Lord. But it was the words that followed those words that one music scholar described as shocking and unmarked by unprecedented power. And those were the words of Psalm 8. Lord, 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 how excellent is your name in all the earth. Bach had married in this singular piece of music what seemed to be incompatible Lament and praise. And we're, we're ending our series on Mark this week. We're at the end of Mark, and there's been a, a good time now that we've been really immersed in lament. We have, been, we have slow walked through Jesus' arrest and His trial and His mockery and His abuse and His rejection and ultimately His execution on the cross. In fact, the last reference to Jesus in this gospel was as a corpse, to be handed over to Joseph of Arimathea, to be interred into the tomb uh, before the Sabbath day to, had begun. And, and if, if Mark were an audiobook, the last thing we would have heard would, would have been the thud of a giant stone sealing the tomb. You know, all, it's just all lamentation and grief. In, in fact, you know, it, the story seems to be over, and, and of course, when anyone dies, there's details to attend to. Many of us have experience that as there is with any death, uh, details that sort of the strictures of the Sabbath, you know, didn't allow time to complete. So here we are with the Sabbath over, the sun up, and, and these three women um, showing up on their way to Jesus' tomb to, to, to finish that work of, of sealing him in there forever. These are the same women who not long ago uh, had witnessed Jesus take his last breath. They're named uh, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. And it's, it's worth pointing out that these women have been named not once, not twice, but three times in just the last few verses. And I think that's really important for us. Uh, one writer suggested that the inclusion of their names and the emphasis on their names needs to be thought of something as something like a footnote or an, or an academic citation uh, validating the historicity and the reliability of what Mark's conveying to his audience. It shows us that he is the opposite of a myth-maker. He's a scrupulous note-taker. Uh, he's a historian. He's recording and relaying the actual events with the names of actual people whom at the time this was written and distributed, anybody could have gone and talked to, or at least talked to one of their relatives. 
he's not merely recording history. He's also, by doing that, he is inviting investigation. He's saying, you know, check this out for yourselves. Greg mentioned last week that just the fact that Mark records the name of women as the witnesses to these things bolsters the reliability of the count because if he were a myth maker, if he were creating something out of thin air that he hoped would be received as credible in this culture, he never would have conjured up a story in which the first witnesses to the resurrection were women for the simple fact that the testimony of women was considered completely unreliable. It wasn't even allowed in court. And yet, Mark records women as the first witnesses to the resurrection for this reason. The first witnesses to the resurrection were women. These women. Now, that's not to say they were the only ones around. These last days of Jesus' life, you know, are populated by practically every person you can imagine. There have been politicians and priests and soldiers and centurions and criminals and children and crowds and passers-by and his disciples, of course. And, and it, it's that last group, it's those disciples, you know, that's kind of the hardest group to contend with uh, because even more notable than the presence of these women is the absence of those men. Those who were closest to Jesus in this life, who walked most closely with him, are nowhere to be found in the hour of his death, and they're nowhere to be found in the aftermath of that death. It's down to these three women who faithfully followed Jesus, who we were told last week ministered to him in life, and now they're here ministering to him in death, finishing up kind of the the grim work of preparing the body to lay in the grave, and they're bringing burial spices and ointments so that he could be properly and finally interred. And, and, you know, as they're headed over to the tomb, it's, it's clear they're concerned about some things. They're talking about this stone, you know, and how are we going to get that out of the way so we can get in and do the work? It's very much on their minds. But once they get there, they see that this very large stone had been moved, had been rolled away. So they step into the tomb, expecting to finish the work that Joseph had started, but instead of coming upon Jesus' body, Mark tells us they come upon a young man. Uh, Every other gospel identifies this figure as an angel, and even though Mark doesn't use that exact language, uh, he is described very much in those terms. He is described as being uh, clothed in a pure white robe, Um, but, but even more notable than what he's wearing is what he has to say. He begins with the standard angelic greeting, don't be alarmed, don't be afraid. You always have to say that because the appearance of one who stood in the presence of God has this effect on mortals. They think they're going to die. Just just getting even in the neighborhood of the glory. They think they'll be undone. And so he says, don't be afraid, don't be alarmed. Now the word angel means messenger, and sure enough, he comes with a message. And You know, just as I mentioned that the events leading up to Jesus' death are full of all kinds of people, uh, with those people has come all kinds of talk, lots of opinions, lots of deliberations, lots of debates, lots of questions, lots of conjectures, all having to do with Jesus. You know, things like, who does he think he is? Who do we say he is? What should we do with someone like him? Why doesn't he save himself? So I want to notice in this moment, two really important things happen. 
heaven speaks, and human mouths are shut. The time has come to cover the mouth and hear what God has to say. And in fact, after this moment, there's not another human utterance in the rest of the gospel. The angel begins with the message. He says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Um, Jesus has had a lot of titles in this gospel, a couple of the prominent ones, the king of the Jews, the son of God, and, and here's a new one. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the crucified, the crucified one. The angel doesn't sort of pretty up in, you know, the language of death like we tend to do. He doesn't use the Mary Baker, Eddie, you know, thing that we've kind of adopted in our culture. He's passed away. He's gone on, no longer with us. He, he, he says he died, and he not only says he died, he tells us the horrible way in which he died. He says he was crucified. He's a crucified man. And, and not only that, but he tells them he's no longer here. Now, you, 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 you might expect any number of things to be said after saying he's no longer here. If you're kind of a practically-minded person, you might say he's no longer here because he's been moved. If you're a, maybe kind of a spiritual person, you might think, He'd say something like, he's no longer here because he's been taken up to heaven. Or if you're kind of a philosophically minded person, you might say something like, he's no longer here because he'll always live in our hearts. But he reports this, he is no longer here. He is risen, just as he has said. Now, just to point out the obvious, when he says he's risen and he isn't here, that means that Jesus was here, but now he's somewhere else. Um, he was in the place you put corpses because he was a corpse. But he's not in that place anymore because he's no longer a corpse. It's good for us at this point, I think, to be reminded, and it's good to be reminded with regularity what gospel means, especially since it's our aim here to talk about the gospel a lot, uh, to be a gospel-centered church, to preach the gospel. Uh, we use that term a lot here. We, we have, I just want to point out, we've just heard a gospel from the angel. Uh, we've heard good news. It's news. Uh, you know, and I want to say that. I want to emphasize that because before we, we, we spend time on the goodness of it, I kind of want to spend time on the newsness of it. Um, the angel's reporting news. He's telling them what's happened. This is why he doesn't say things like, you know, Jesus has, uh, has risen, and, and if you sincerely believe this in your heart that he lives, he'll live in you. And he doesn't say, you know, if you just receive him truly, his message will be true for you, and it'll change your life. You know, news is, is that which is true and has happened, you know, whether or not you choose to believe it or not. They are the facts. Jesus isn't eulogized because he lives in his resurrection isn't spiritualized because it's news. It's, it's that which has happened. Now, you know, important people die all the time. Just in this last year, we lost, like, pretty major people. Pope Benedict, Queen Elizabeth, Mikhail Gorbachev, people even more important to them than them, like Jerry Lee Lewis and Loretta Lynn. What happens when, when we lose important people? 
you know, we say things like, their influence and their teaching will live on. In us, maybe. Their lives will continue to inspire us. We'll, we'll always have their memories in our hearts. None of those things are said of Jesus. Because we're not merely left with an influence or a teaching or inspiration or memories. We're not left at all. The angel says that the one you seek, Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, has risen. He is not here. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth, in other words, is still in the neighborhood. He's not in the place where we all end up eventually in the grave. He's, he's gotten up and gone out. That, that's the announcement. And, and I want to pay attention. What follows the announcement is invitation. He doesn't say, there's the news. Take it or leave it. Off with you. He invites them. He says, come closer. Get, walk further into this grave and look at where he was laid. Um, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to know what the place where he was laid must have looked like for someone who had died by crucifixion. It would have been a bloody mess. And the angel is eager that they see that for themselves, that they see it up close. And, and you know, I want to notice a really important pattern here. It's one that's relevant and matters today, and that is that gospel proclamation is always followed by gospel invitation and welcomes gospel investigation. Because our conviction is that the good news has happened. And that creates, you know, a kind of urgency and an openness for you to check it out and to know about it and to see it for yourself and to rejoice in it. The gospel welcomes that. It welcomes curiosity. It welcomes questions. It welcomes investigation. It welcomes skepticism. Engaging the gospel message with good faith curiosity and really hard questions isn't to reject it. It's to take it seriously. That's why, you know, a gospel preaching church, you know, like ours, you know, our desire is that this would be the place where not just a gathering of believers, but a gathering of skeptics. You know, where we can gather together because we're always in the business of proclaiming and inviting and asking everyone to come in and look closer and ask a lot of questions, ask really hard questions. You know, so if you have a really skeptical friend, invite them to come on in. They may have never even been in a church building in their whole life. You know, and if you're skeptical yourself, you know, what's your email, Greg? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. You can reach, reach out to anybody here, right? Any of the elders. But seriously, let's just talk. You know, we might have the answers. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you right now, I'm, we may not have the answers. We, we might be wrestling with the very thing you're wrestling with. You know, it's even possible that, that the kind of God you don't believe in, we don't believe in either. <laughs> You know, but, but, our, but our desire is to go in together, to go and see and, and, and submit ourselves before the Word and the Lord and, and trust Him to show us what is true and good. The angel invites them. He invites all of it. And because he's not sharing his own opinions, but he's heralding heaven's message, you know, we can say that that is the Lord's heart. The Lord does that, invites us to come in and check it out and see for yourself what he's done. 
Now, it doesn't end there. He asks them to come in, but pretty quickly, he urges them to go out. He tells them to get, to, to get out of here and, and, and to tell Jesus' disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. And, you know, that's kind of the thing about good news, isn't it? Um, good news can't be internalized. I don't know if you've ever felt this for yourself. It's, it, if it's good news, if it's truly good, very hard to internalize it, very hard to keep it cherished inside your own little precious heart all for yourself. You know, it, read a wonderful book, see a great film, go on a great vacation, take a bite of a great dessert, and what happens? You know, I'll tell you what doesn't happen. Uh, you don't have to sign up for a seminar thinking about how best to share that information with other people. Because you're bursting. You become an evangelist. You just are. You have tasted, and you've seen that it's good. I mean, I've had... Meals 20 years ago, I can tell you about right now with a lot of enthusiasm. And, and in fact, if good news goes unshared, unshared, you know, the joy of it is actually deeply incomplete, isn't it? It's why it's a bummer to sit by yourself and watch a great sunset. You know, it's why it's a bummer to sit in a movie theater by yourself. You know, good news is, is that which... The goodness of it is completed when it's shared. So the women have come in and they've seen a wondrous sign and a wonderful thing that's happened and now it's time to get out. And interestingly, the angel doesn't say, now go tell everybody. He tells them uh, specifically where to go, to the disciples. And then, you know, the way he puts it is interesting. The disciples and Peter. You know, tell them that, P that Jesus is going before you to Galilee where well, where, well, where they will see him just as he told you. Now, we've talked a lot about the scandal of the, the disciples' absence. But, but what's shocking, I want to say, and maybe bordering on even more scandalous, is that the heavenly command is to get the good news as soon as possible to the failed no-shows. To those who've blown it the biggest. God doesn't say, you know, now get out there and find me some people. You've got a little backbone. Find me some faithful people. Find me some people who will be strong and take a stand for Jesus. You know, find me some people who are a little more appreciative. Neither does he say, you know, go to those guys and, and here's what you tell them when you get to them. Tell them I told you so. Tell them, man, you guys blew it. In fact, what he says is he says, he instructs them to make a beeline for the most shaky and fearful and failed and fantastic failures you could ever imagine. The guys who walked with Jesus for three years and folded like a wet paper bag when he did exactly what he said he would do. And, and when what happened, happened exactly as he said it would happen. Tell them, Jesus is coming to you. That, my friends, I want to say, if you want to understand the heart of God for fools and failures like you and me, that's it. Making a beeline to you, quickly as possible. Now, these women are pretty shaky themselves. Um, so the angel doesn't give them an assignment. He, he actually, 
he doesn't give them merely an assignment, I should say. He also gives them assurance. Uh, he tells them, Jesus is going ahead of you. You know, he's going to Galilee, this little town. You'll see him there. You're not alone. You're not isolated. Jesus, you know, Jesus doesn't walk out of the tomb into the higher life. He, he, he walks out of the tomb into the, the messiness of life. You know, um, this is kind of like saying, showing up to us this morning and going, you know, head over to Espanola. Jesus, you'll see Jesus there. He's at El Parasol. He doesn't walk out of death into the higher life. He walks out of death right directly into the midst of, of, of the messiness of life, into dusty little Galilee, where real people live, real failures are. You, you want to know where he is? You know, the angel doesn't say, you know, look for the place where uh, there, there is the fluttering of angels' wings. <laughs> or listen for the trumpets and move toward the light. Uh, he's in Galilee. So the women head out, and they, they flee from the tomb for trembling and astonishment and seize them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. <laughs> yeah, and that's the end of Mark. It's just a surprising ending, isn't it? They don't leave the tomb faithful. They leave the tomb fearful. They, they were so shaken, you know, we're, we're told they don't say anything to anyone because, of, because they were so afraid. You know, and how are we supposed to make sense of that? Well, I think we make sense of it by looking at the very last thing said not about the women or the disciples, but about Jesus. And that is that everything absolutely everything that has happened and is happening and will happen is happening just as he told you. Just as he told you is a big deal. What has he told them? Well, right after his final meal with his disciples, he told them this, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. If you've tracked with this gospel, you might remember that when he said that, when he said that very thing, he was opposed. You know, bitterly, fiercely, Peter gets in his face and insists, I'll never be that unfaithful to you, Jesus. You know, um, he tells him he'll never let Jesus die. He, he says, all these other clowns might fall away, but not me. And he even goes so, so far as to insist, I'll die for you. I'll be damned if you're going to die for me. And then Jesus says, Peter, not only will you fall away, but your, following, your falling away will be spectacular. You won't deny me once. You won't deny me twice. You will deny me three times. In other words, you will run as fast and as far from me as you humanly can. And so will everyone else. And even though Jesus doesn't say it, that running fast and far from Jesus doesn't start at the arrest or the trial or the crucifixion. It's actually going on in that very confrontation in the room right then. It's going on at that supper as everyone insists on their own faithfulness while ignoring Jesus' faithfulness. He won't sacrifice for them. They'll sacrifice for him. 
The last thing said about Jesus is that all of that, all of everything, all the fears and the failings are just as he told you. And, and, and in it, he remains faithful. If you want to know the depth of that faithfulness, notice again that the angel tells the women that Jesus is going to the disciples and Peter. That's poignant and that's potent. And, you know, the one most insistent about the heroics of his own faith turns out to be the biggest failure of, our, of all. And here we are, every promise broken except the promise of Jesus. He promised that after I raised up, I'm coming to you. He doesn't wait for them to come to him. And in fact, I want to say he can't wait to get to them. He's not waiting for the women in the tomb. He's on his way. He goes straight to the biggest disappointments, the biggest failures, the most faithless, the people who've done everything that they possibly could to break apart and blow up and burn down their relationship with Jesus. Fearful, failed, foolish, faithless, and that's not all they are, but here's the most important thing you can say about them here at the end of the gospel. They are dearly loved. Dearly loved by the living and tenacious and gracious and faithful Savior who loves sinners. These are sinners. These are sinners. These, here's a sinner. They weren't the only ones to leave the tomb that day. Before the women walked out of the tomb, Jesus did. They're fearful in taking the news to others, but Jesus is faithful in getting himself right to the fear and right to the faithlessness. I was talking with someone recently who kind of blurted out in a conversation that he had an anger problem. And he, he, he got a little embarrassed that he said that. Kind of, you know, began to kind of reel it in, tried to explain it. Said, well, you know, it's not really that bad. It's, you know, it's, I got a little anger, but, you know, it's really kind of the occasional frustration. And, you know, it's under control. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not abusive. Yeah, I jumped in. I said, it's okay, man. I've got an anger problem too. I do. And, and, and I've got an anxiety problem and I've got a fear problem. I've got all the problems. You know, we all try to manage that stuff, the, the anger and the anxiety, the fear and the frustration, the, the lack of faith, because, you know, we've got to be strong and acceptable and impenetrable and successful to navigate this life, don't we? But what if we believed in the resurrection? What if we believe the gospel? What if we believe that Jesus is faithful to come to us just as he said? Not waiting for us to become faithful, but coming to us in our faithlessness and our failure and our anger problems and our anxiety problems and all the mess that, you know, we semi-successfully hide until we blurt it out and the truth is actually revealed about our hearts. What if we believe the truth about Jesus that, in fact, he cannot wait to get to you, to show you the truth of what I think we've always suspected is actually true, and that is that we are not enough, that, that we are inadequate to the world, that we are inadequate to this life. We're inadequate to even ourselves, but he is utterly sufficient for all of it because he has overcome everything. He is overcome the grave, the last enemy. And he did not do that for himself. He did that for us. 
Tim Keller says that life is so hard because we think this broken world is the only world where we're, we're ever going to have. It's easy to feel as if this money is the only wealth we'll ever have and as if this body is the only body we'll ever have. But if the resurrection is true, he goes on to say, if Jesus, if Jesus is risen, then your future is so much more beautiful and so much more certain than that. I was thinking this week about Kara Tippett. I don't know if you know that name. Um, Kara Tippett, uh, like, like my own wife, is a pastor's wife, like my own wife, the, pa- the wife of a church planter just up the road in Colorado Springs. And she underwent a terrible fight with cancer. Took her in the, in the prime of her life at the age of 38, leaving behind her husband and a daughter. And she chronicled this battle in a blog, very powerful. You can still go and read it. And among the last of her posts was a letter she wrote to her cancer. She just called it Dear Cancer. And she begins by saying to her cancer, um, you're going to have to bear with me, this is hard to read, Uh, that it's always... It's always been an unwelcome guest in her body. She recalls all the hopes she had that it would finally and fully leave her body so that she could be well again, only to see it get worse and worse and get into her bones and into her blood. And, uh, you know, making it clear that it would be the end of her, the end of her life. And that seemed to be the end, the fear and the failure and the certainty of death and leaving her children motherless and her husband widowed, widowed. But, but the letter takes a turn as she continues to speak to that cancer, ravaging her body and about to take her life. And here's, here's what she says. Here's what you will never do, you unhappy house guest. You will never separate me from the Holy Spirit. See him there with you. He's watching every cell. He sees you. He's the one giving me all this peace that confounds you. You will never take my joy. You will never keep me from a moment of living next to my people. And I know you think that you're that think you are the one killing me with all your fast-growing cell business, but you are not the boss. Uh, the day I breathe my last is exactly exactly numbered. You don't get a say in that. And when that day comes, and it will come, my people will be kept, kept so beautifully. You know, that is what it's like to live and die with your hope, not in your personal strength, not in your faithfulness, but in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? You know, I'm dying. You're dying. Uh, I've got anger problems and anxiety problems and control issues and brokenness and loneliness and emptiness, and so do you. And and we all long for something better and something more, and it may be that you cannot imagine anything beyond what we have in hand and in view in the right here and right now, but Jesus lives. The gospel is good news. The resurrection happened. It's real. And, And in it, the Lord has shown 
us that loneliness and poverty and brokenness and strife and heartbreak and disease and death don't have the final word. Jesus does. Those women who fled Jesus' tomb afraid were the same people who would come very soon to see the risen Jesus, alive from the dead. You know, we know from the other Gospels that the first thing Jesus does when he sees his people is show them, he shows them his body. He shows them his, his wounds, his hands, his feet, his side, all the wounds, the, the very wounds which days before were the source of deep grief and despair for his people, the wounds which made what he endured on the cross so devastating and so final, the wounds which looked to be, only, to be not only the final undoing and devastation of Jesus' life, but everyone else's who was connected to him, and yet... Jesus insists they look at the wounds. And and, and the reason he insists that is so that they would see that what they thought was ruin was actually redemption. They needed to see what he did for them so that they would never see anything else the same way ever again. They, They needed to not just look at the devastation, but through it. You know, not as the end of the story, but as a new beginning so that lament could be turned to praise, so that through his death would come life. The gospel means that this death by a thousand cuts life, you know, is neither merciless nor meaningless, but because the resurrection is true, that which once broke our heart can now become joy and delight in light of the resurrection. Believe in the resurrection. Believe in Jesus. There's no life apart from it. Live in light of it. Long for the renewal of all things so that you may know that the tears of today will be turned to joy and the devastation of this life will be embraced, will be transformed into an embrace of grace. Knowing, you know, knowing for ourselves how excellent is the name of the Lord in all the earth. Let's uh, pray as we prepare to go to the table. Lord, uh, at the heart of this table is that we fellowship with you and we are able to fellowship with you because you live and you reign. We don't talk about this supper as a memorial because we are not memorializing a dead person. We are communing with the living Christ. And so, Lord, that, uh, that's kind of astounding. <laughs> um, would you astound us? Lord, more deeply as we come here, would we, would we think about kind of the fullness of the gospel, that it's good news for sinners? Lord, could we take some, a moment to reflect on the depth of our own brokenness, but not just stay there, but reflect on the depth of your grace in meeting us and not withholding yourself at all in your eagerness and determination to make a beeline for your people so that we would embrace you and find our life in you. Uh, Lord, can we eat and drink to that effect this morning, delighting in the fact that, that, that you have fully given yourself, and, and if we can put it this way, you continue to give. You are truly the gift that keeps on giving. So, Lord, as we eat and drink and are nourished in our bodies, Lord, would we also be nourished to the depths of our soul that we would take this meal as a great foretaste 
as a, as a present nourishment and also a foretaste of the life to come, which you have begun here with your people, even as you are with us. You are beautiful. You are a great Savior. Lord, help us to um, enjoy that together as we come. In Jesus' name, amen.